Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track-track by track-track through the underbelly of music history, using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations, you have found the Internet's finest podcast for music that sounds better with one note instead of two notes, but sounds even better with zero notes instead of one note. Today we're going to continue our series of talking about records that were written, conceived, recorded in isolation, and so we're going to jump right into our turntable talk. Everybody's talking at me, I don't hear a word they're saying, only the echoes of my mind. Like it or not, we're all chained to our past. What we have done slowly becomes who we are. This holds especially true for musicians as they constantly struggle against what they have already created for the world to behold. The pieces of art that fans, labels, journalists, and maybe themselves become forever tethered to their identity. The crusty joke about, I like their old stuff better, is often truly a death knell for a band's growth. An artist is frozen in time by their own past success. Why try anything new if it won't matter to most of the people who care about your product anyway? And frankly, for a lot of bands, they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. Changing styles might spark the sellout or jumped the shark chants with angry mobs carrying pitchforks and reading pitchfork. If you don't, though, you risk growing stale and fading away. Some bands lean into a stylistic steadfastness and can compel allegiance through sheer, resolute commitment. The Ramones, Motorhead, and the Cramps built a brand on a singular style, albeit their own very unique style. Most artists with some longevity ebb and flow, grow and retreat, but hang around their general vicinity of comfort. There are tons of examples of this. Artists like Wilco, R.E.M., Willie Nelson, Rolling Stones, etc. The list goes on and on. Some artists reinvent themselves constantly throughout their careers, but never to a completely unrecognizable degree. This would include David Bowie, Prince, Madonna, and Bob Dylan. Some simply pinball from one horrific sound to the next. Sting, for example, and his tantrically mediocre existence. Some artists might occasionally take an oddball flyer on a totally random genre record that exists squarely outside of their canon maybe for fun or by accident or out-of-contract obligations. Think Serge Gainsbourg's reggae album, Ween's country album, Neil Young's trance, metal machine music, Pat Boone's unfortunately satisfying metal album, and, of course, the often cited here, Chris Gaines taking off the goatee mask to become Garth Brooks. These often sound more on the wrong side of the novelty-to-homage scale. However, there are a few cases when an artist completely reinvents themselves, elevating the limits of ambition and shattering preconceived notions of their music. Scott Walker left behind his teeny bopper career to become a pork-pounding master of the avant-garde. Tom Waits evolved from a barroom balladeer to a carnival-barking madman. Brian Eno disrobed from his leopard print glam tendencies to essentially single-handedly herald in stark ambient music. And finally, Talk Talk, who started as a group of synth-toting Duran Duran doppelganger doppelgangers to being at the forefront of the post-rock movement. 1991's Laughing Stock could not have been a more appropriately titled record. The album, which was such an immense departure from the single-churning, shiny new wave pop band that had just a few years prior gone to number one on the dance charts. There would be no dancing to this record. It is quiet, dark, spacious, and distant. But who exactly is the butt of this joke? A new label that gave an extremely popular band unlimited freedom and resources? Fans who had no idea what to make of an album that is more about environment impressions and mood than a traditional song structure. The critics who were too confused to recognize genius 
were too sure of themselves to recognize confusion, or the band themselves that were in an unending process of reinvention only to find that they were back to square one. Maybe that is right where they wanted to be. As we continue to delve into different forms of isolation, shaped and sculpted into musical artifacts, Talk Talk's laughingstock is intentionally distancing from the sentiment and bias of the past. A band that desperately works to create space and blatant disregard from what they are supposed to be. And in the end, it turns out to be too destructive of a force for the group to continue. Laughingstock is a truly complex record, an album of intricate sound that consists mostly of improvisation and patched-together tapestries from over 50 musicians, most of whose recordings were discarded. A painstaking recording and production process that took almost a full year and an untold amount of money. The leader of the group was one of the most perplexing and inscrutable rock stars who gave little clue before or after on the how and why of his self-acknowledged masterpiece, and finally a most circuitous history that both confounds and explains how a new romantic hit machine turned into cutting-edge art rockers in just five records. While Laughingstock is clearly a rebellious reaction to the radio-friendly procedural music industry machine of the band's early years, It is also a record that could have never been made without the success and fame and power the band garnered from that time. In 1981, Talk Talk formed as a completely synth-based dance-pop quartet with a love of Roxy Music and David Bowie, led by frontman Mark Hollis. The band had stated that financial need was the impetus for using electronic devices over acoustic instruments, Hollis hated synthesizers, but appreciated the wide range of options they allowed for. As Duran Duran was taking over the airwaves, EMI was looking for similar bands to capitalize on the new wave craze, and Talk Talk fit the bill perfectly. Catchy, lovelorn songs, fashionable, good-looking fellas, boy band boo fonts, and even the double-word name. EMI signed the band, gave them Duran Duran's producer, and even had them open for the band on a tour. Though early singles missed, Talk Talk finally found success with the single Talk Talk, which was big in the UK, Ireland, South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand, and even charted in the U.S., They weren't the only band to have hit singles celebrating their own name. Looking at you, Big Country, Bo Diddley, Wang Chung, Bo Diddley, Ice House, Bo Diddley, Bell and Sebastian, Bo Diddley, and the Bathroom Shitters. <laughs> During these early years, Hollis met Tim Freeze Green, who would end up being a huge part of their sound, producing, co-writing, and playing keyboards, though never officially joining the band and, for the most part, staying out of the limelight. A Van Dyke Parks to the Beach Boys' Brian Wilson, with fewer bathrobes and fewer duets of shortening bread with Iggy Pop. Their second album, It's My Life, was a much bigger success, with the title track a top 40 hit all over the world. Despite starting to make some serious money and getting a lot of attention, Hollis was already exhibiting signs of irritation with the prefabricated music industry process. 
When strong-armed into making a video for It's My Life, he refused to lip-sync, causing the video to have animated lines on top of his mouth, which was ensconced with a sullen expression. It's sort of weird. Their music was evolving and now showing emotional depth far beyond many of their Frankie Say Relax synth-pop peers. By the third album, 1986's Color of Spring, the band had ditched synth-pop for a fuller, more expansive sound. Hollis and Freeze Green wrote strong songs with more orchestration and experimentation in tone and rhythm. Still, after the record was pretty much complete, their manager suggested they needed some radio songs. So the band came back with Life's What You Make It and Living in Another World, which ended up being huge singles, making the album very, very successful, selling 2 million copies, prompting a world tour, and thrusting the band into being one of the biggest global acts of the new wave era. Now international stars, EMI gave the band near carte blanche for recording their new record, saying that they could pretty much do whatever they wanted. The label probably wasn't expecting what came next. Hollis completely revamped how he and the band recorded the record, Spirit of Eden. The album was a stepping stone for what would be fully realized with Laughingstock. In fact, they can almost be considered complementary records, except, as we will see in a minute, they were recorded on different labels with very different expectations. Many of the practices that would make Laughingstock so disarming were initially conceived of for spirit. Ensemble players, mishmashing of sounds and styles, assembled improvisational pieces, being recorded at Wessex Sound Studios, disdain for standard pop conventions, and definitely having no singles. Even the covers are connected with the Laughingstock cover seemingly a continuation of Spirit of Eden by Talk Talk's album cover artist, James Marsh. Up to that point, James Marsh had been most famous for two works released back in 1969. A poster for Andy Warhol's Chelsea Girls and the cover of the book The Illustrated Beatles Lyrics. He became involved with Talk Talk at the very start of their recording career through their manager Keith Aspton. The art of the first couple releases was based simply on the name of the band, but as Marsh heard the music evolve and become more minimal, sparse, and natural, so too did the album art. For the Spirit of Eden cover, Marsh used an unpublished painting he'd made in 1975. The cover shows the allure of man's origins, nature and the sea, which Marsh recognized in the band's early recordings for the album. The original painting marked a transition in Marsh's style, as it did for the band when they began working on Spirit of Eden. The choice was serendipitous. For Laughingstock, Marsh and the band wanted to take the natural pastiche slightly further. The life force motif was still clear, but instead of fish, it was suggested to Marsh that he use endangered birds. The tree branches formed a globe, and the nearly extinct birds formed Earth's continents. For me, Marsh's work serves as a less nuanced Archimboldo image. Archimboldo was a 16th century Italian painter, known for beautifully grotesque portraits composed of fruits, animals, and various objects, and was a huge inspiration on the Surrealist movement and James Marsh, obviously. Spirit of Eden was released to an unprepared public, but it still had decent, if not perplexed, reviews and sold a respectable 60,000 copies, peaking at 19 in the UK. Of course, this is a drop in the bucket compared to Color of Spring. The band pulled a Beatlesque move and stated they had no interest in touring, saying there was no way to present the material on stage as it was impossible to produce live. This was probably true, but EMI was not happy. There is a legend that when the A&R man first heard the master tapes, he broke into tears not because of the pastoral beauty of a new free expression of post-rock music contained within, but because he knew that this album would flop and he might end up on an unemployed cocaine bender and eventually walk into the ocean. (laughs) 
The label had previously requested that the band modify existing songs or record new ones, as this product was not commercially viable. Hollis steadfastly refused. Then the label put out a radio edit of one of the songs, but that just made the whole thing sound even more bizarre. The band's manager and the label got litigious, primarily around a contract extension. The band wanted out, and after several months in court, was able to get their contract nullified. EMI, shortly thereafter, made another cash grab and released a Greatest Hits album that did very well. They also attempted to put a remix record out, but the band sued to have that stopped. These legal woes and frenetic reinventions had taken a toll on the band, and by the time Talk Talk was ready to enter the studio for their next album, the only remaining members were Hollis, Drummer Lee Karras, and the hanger-on Free Screen. They began looking for a new label. All right, we know that we've covered a lot about Talk Talk's other albums and not even touched on Laughingstock. However, that context is critical to understanding where this record came from. The battles that the band waged, both within the group and outside of it, weighed heavily in how Hollis continued on toward obtaining his vision. This was a massively successful group that had completely turned their backs on their style and had lost a label, fans, the respect of some music critics, and band members in the process. Fortunately, big-time labels only care about making money, and the people running them have no actual human emotions. Talk Talk signed with Polydor's jazz imprint, Verve Records, after guarantees that the band would have full funding and control for their record. Hollis was happy because the Mothers of Invention were once on Verve. So were the Velvet Underground, Mark. Stop eating the yellow snow. The label surely thought, despite having full knowledge of the previous record's strange proclivities, that a band that was on the top of the world just a few years ago was definitely a sound investment. They even foolishly believed that the band might once again be willing to tour. Verve got neither a commercial record nor a touring band, nor a band leader who'd help promote their achievements in any way. In fact, it is likely that they still haven't seen a full return on the money put forth on the band or this one record. Shortly after the contract was signed, the craziness began. Who's eating the yellow snow now, Verve? (laughs) Stepping back to try to understand the mentality of Hollis should help illuminate the process. Hollis had spoke of three main influences on Laughingstock. Cans Tagomago, Bob Dylan's New Morning, and John Coltrane's In a Perfect Mood. While these are seemingly three completely different records, they are joined in a spirit of assemblage, beyond just being really great. A mood was evoked in each, but they also meticulously controlled how the music was cobbled together. Hollis didn't write songs for song's sake. Rather, he provided an atmosphere for the music to live and breathe, and then united the soundscapes into cohesion. The six-song, 43-minute record is a sprawling mosaic of precise editing and post-production. In fact, the post-rockness of it all comes from the fact that the album sounds like it was produced more than it was written. This is essentially true. Given no restraints, Hollis brought in around 50 musicians to the studio and gave them an overtly obscure idea of what they should do. A specific key or a simple chord structure, and just let them go with it as he recorded everything. His mindset was explained in an interview. The first time something is played, it is at its finest, and the minute you try to recreate it that, it becomes an imitation of something that was originally better. But the problem with a lot of improvisation is that it meanders away from the point too much. We wanted to play almost from an attitude point of view, give them absolute freedom in terms of what they play, so that everything they do play is freeform. End quote. Clearly, there's a huge problem with that if you've ever tried to create anything. Your first draft isn't your best draft. Improvisation can be wonderful, but it's usually used as part of a journey to a complete project. And limitless time and money for studio improvisation is a luxury that usually is not afforded to bands. That's why I hate improv comedy. I'll wait until they get it finished. <laughs> For being such a great musician, he just is not very good at interviews. Or he, it's, <laughs> it's like he expects the interviewers 
to record everything he says and then splice it into <laughs> sensical comments. Yeah. <laughs> you know, David Bowie used cutouts, and that's what I'm going to use talking now today. I'm going to say talk just once, and then you're going to put it together every time so I don't have to waste words by saying that word twice. Here we go. Imitation first, something time, problem, improvisation. <laughs> this impromptu-centric attitude might indicate that there was a sort of musical democracy, but that wasn't the case at all, according to people around when the album was recorded and constructed. The recording process was probably more than a bit unusual and abstract for the musicians who were brought in. On top of this, Hollis had a singular and sometimes abrasive mindset about his record. He may not have been as outwardly violent and unpredictable as Phil Spector, or exhibited the PsyOps Manson-esque mind control of a Captain Beefheart, or even the strangeness of the loony team-building calisthenics of Kevin Rowland. But Hollis was a tyrannical perfectionist in the studio, more in line with the obsessive tendencies of a Van Dyke Parks or Kevin Shields. The studio was set up to create an appropriate atmosphere. Clocks were removed, windows were blacked out, and oil projections and strobe lights were set up on the walls and ceiling to provide the only light. It was like a Fremont Street strip club without the buffet and free drinks. Sessions were long, bleak, arduous, and prone to bouts of outbursts from Hollis. He would smugly maintain an expectation that his guests should express their character and refine their contribution to the purest, most truthful essence. Without being given much direction, locked in a studio with a dark and brooding atmosphere, being helmed by a morose, dominating figure, requiring that the musicians get their essence down on tape or else real floggings will continue until morale improves. A situation that may have produced interesting music, but also provided for a debilitating work environment. Of course, they had no idea about the single-mindedness and brilliance of this man who was envisioning a record that he wanted to make and for so long had been making music that circumstances had forced upon him. Hollis and Freeze Green would later take the hours of recordings and splice them together into the smallest, most succinct fragments of what they believed was right. People would feel upset or personally hurt that the time spent on recording that they felt was worthy would be dismissed so easily. However, it was always within the context of the vision of the album. Hollis had a plan and knew what it would take to execute it. A power arose from this kill-your-darlings mindset. There was no fear of deleting, no looking back, no concern of missing the one right part because there was no predefined one right part. Hollis had suggested that only maybe a half a percent of what is recorded is usable. In fact, of the 50 performers, only about 18 actually ended up on the final album. The vast majority of the music that was recorded never made it beyond the first few edits. The setup of the studio allowed for constant tinkering and evaluation. Recorded as digital technologies were emerging, opened a lot of as-of-yet-untapped possibilities. Over 120 tracks were available to play around with, and plenty of studio wizardry was implemented, including sampling, looping, offsetting, backwards FX, and unusual microphone placement. A number of instruments and found object sounds were experimented with. Beyond this, Hollis was not afraid of silence, as evidenced by any interview with him. On the contrary, he exhibited some obsession with it. The silence is above everything. I'd rather hear one note than I would two, and I'd rather hear silence than I would one note. For a man that has such like strong vision of what he wants to do, it's like he, he cannot talk about it. It's like he just has to be mean about it, like nobody could possibly understand what he's doing. Yeah, he's he's a dick, but not a clever one. In those interviews, he doesn't say anything that sounds smart at all. The whole two, one note is better than two and silence is better than one note, that doesn't make any sense. And that's not really what this, this is. He's not doing like Eno stuff where he's taking one note forever. I mean, he's he's doing pop music. 
That's as asinine a comment as the comment about the first draft being the best. They're both ridiculous. If that were the case, he should just bring all 50 people in, let them improvise together, and that would be it. He wouldn't have to spend any time to put it together. All recording is done in an hour. Verve is happy. (laughs) Turn off the strobe lights. Let's go home. The singing and lyrics on the record have a mystical nature. The voice is often buried in the mix and is little more than a softly murmuring nebulous of neo-religious lines about faith, dependence, luck, judgment, effigies, sacraments, flesh, and nature, and pancakes. (laughs) Undoubtedly, Hollis had a gorgeous voice that he clearly knew flattered his music. The result is stunning, enchanting, and beautiful. Left to his own devices, Hollis emits a sound that floats through the air with no ground below on which to land. Ambient, classical, jazz, prog, gospel, all are swept up in a hushed wind that occasionally spins like a tornado, only to calm as quickly as it gathered. Enigmatic snippets that echo into a breathless collage. The songs felt like they were built up and developed at the exact point when the needle rested itself on the vinyl. There is a sense of deliberateness. Things unfold slowly. Tiny fragments of sound appear suddenly but never randomly. Nearly as demanding an album as an album can be, the songs are connected and are intended to be focused on, doted over, and experienced fully, as they flow from one into the next and back again. It's as if Hollis caught the album as it was floating gently to the ground like a leaf on a breezy day. The album exists through the entirety of that flight, but we're only ever allowed to know it at the one brief snapshot of a moment. Tom Fleming of the band Wild Beasts perfectly summarizes its existence in saying, The whole album is a mutation of a single idea that a song is an uncertain thing. I could never imagine the album to be carefully rehearsed or reproduced. Rather, it's the sound of a never-ending process. Not being a progression toward an ultimate end, the whole point is in the doing, of the present moment. Mark Hollis also said, One idea is better than two, and I'd rather have zero ideas in my head. (laughs) Can you think of who else does that? That this this is an interesting idea, though, that a song is an uncertain, not finished thing. Somebody that it's something that has to grow and live and change and mutate. Who else kind of does that sort of stuff? Bob Dylan absolutely does this, and he's even been yeah. quoted as talking about a song having sort of a life of its own. Kind of like not being able to step into the same river twice. Right. That's sort of every time he plays a song, you're just seeing a picture of it, which is why his songs mutate and evolve and devolve sometimes and then come back up. They're living their life. He's changing words. He's changing the sound. Those recorded versions were just simply a snapshot. I think Will Oldham, Bonnie Prince Billy, does that too. You know, I can see him live or I can hear his songs on records and they never sound quite the same way. Different things are emphasized. Sometimes it's a totally different, you know, genre of song. Like, he'll come back to his songs and give them new life and new meaning by how he does them. And I've always admired that about him. You know, you can just play your song over and over. Or you could play a song in a different way, but basically the same main idea. I think it's most interesting and probably most difficult to continue to play a song as if it were a new song that has new life and new energy and brings the listener a new perspective. Or to play the song not necessarily as a new song, but a song that is maturing. I remember when you and I saw Will Oldham in Pittsburgh, and he played some songs off of Master and Everyone that hadn't come out yet, And I got so excited for the album because it was rollicking and it was an unbelievable experience seeing that and some of those songs. And then when the album came out, it was slow and very (laughs) calming and dark. And it was, the songs were unrecognizable nearly still good, 
but not as good as the live show we saw. No. When I saw Nick Cave, there's a couple songs that he did that were incredible live. And then when the album came out, I was so disappointed because I'd built the song so so much up in my mind. But when I actually heard what had been laid down on tape, it was it was fine. It was just kind of a letdown to what I'd perceived in my mind. I think the difference with Nick Cave as opposed to Will Oldham and Bob Dylan is that if you see Nick Cave at every show on a tour, they're almost identical. The songs are very similar. He's really great at entertaining and putting a lot into the songs from the album, but he's not changing them. And I think he prefers the recorded versions. And some of it might be the bands that surround the person. Like all three of these guys were talking about Bob Dylan throughout the years, Will Oldham throughout the years, and Nick Cave later. You know, he had pretty steady bands early on, but switched. I think the band and who's playing can really change the feel of the song. And it's an interesting thing. And it's, I just don't think there's many artists who pull that off very well. One of the things about Will Oldham is he seems to have different bands on different tours, but he's playing the same songs. Like you said, I think that really helps. He has other ideas coming at him and other other ways of seeing songs and playing them, and I think he embraces that. Definitely. The whole process of completing Laughingstock took about a year. Recording for seven months, though it appears there were some substantial breaks in between sessions, with several more demanding months in post-production. Imagine the intensity of sitting in the dark, day after day, listening to the same six tracks, while slowly picking through countless hours to find the exact right sonic ingredient to add. Exhaustion seems to have set in towards the end, if not the middle, despite everyone having an idea that they were creating something powerful. We want to take a moment to discuss the songs. Laughingstock really should be listened to as a whole with a brief album-flipping intermission at the halfway mark. That's how it is intended to be heard, and that's how it's best heard. Put on the headphones. No insular clips can capture the experience of the melding of the six lengthy songs, but we still want listeners to get an idea of what the album sounds like. The opener, Ethel Merman, starts with 15 seconds of an amplifier humming an immediate nod to silence. The song drags itself down through ambient noises and faraway piano and guitars, seemingly towards an inevitable bleak ending, which is kind of a disheartening way to start a record, generally speaking. But in that process, the edges of the songs are blurred and it invites you into the milieu of laughing stock. Falling Up Drumming starts on the second song, Ascension Day, which has a significantly stronger dynamic with ripping guitars cleaving the song into small chunks. Like a jazz combo that is trying and failing to climb out of a blender. The song is a chaotic and vicious ode to the inevitable Judgment Day. Locking in at nine minutes, After the Flood might be the centerpiece of the album, a song that appears to be written as Noah's lament standing on the ark thinking about the drowned human race beneath him and which animals he likes best. (laughs) 
<laughs> the masterful production comes through brilliantly. A song where you can truly hear each component placed in with the care of a bomb diffuser cutting the right colored wire. It's gotta be duckbill platypus, right? Taphead has a morbidity about it. Much of it oozes ominously just below the perception of the listener. Unsettling and gorgeous, it is not too far from what Scott Walker would start to do on Tilt. This is the album's best use of Hollis's voice as an instrument, even though it is almost completely engulfed by the wall of reverberations. Or maybe because of that. track New Grass is nearly giddy in comparison to all that surrounds it, though as another nearly 10-minute song, it's hardly a pop hit. It's uplifting and placid and lulls the audience into a pleasant daydream of foreboding ambivalence. concludes the record as a tour de force of ghost blues, ethereal guitars that ring beyond the stretches of time. And like the opener, the song is filled with emptiness. There's a cosmic otherness that is best captured on this final track. Not a release of tension, but a feeling that you have been set free from a self-induced captivity. A cleansing. A sonic bidet. When Verve received the final product, they immediately knew that there was no commercial potential for the record. There were small, vague attempts to market the record as a quality, thought-provoking work, a vanity project. But without radio play or any live show promotion, there was little that could be done. For the band's part, they were feckless and uncooperative. When Hollis was begrudgingly interviewed, he'd blast off quotes like, If you understand it, you do. If you don't, nothing I say will make you understand it. The only thing I can do by talking about it is detract from it. I can't add anything. Can I go home now, then? End quote. He consistently opined that he was unconcerned with others' opinions, which seems to be totally the truth. He finally could realize his own potential. The reviews for the record were mixed to favorable with some showing understanding of the importance in what they were hearing. Melody Maker even said, Talk Talk was the most important group we have. The album ended up charting at 26, but even that was fleeting. As much has been made of this being an artistic triumph over a money-focused record label, there doesn't seem to be much to that perspective with Verve and Hollis. Verve gave Hollis a platform and... In turn, he gave them something they had no idea what to do with. The album wasn't doomed to not be commercial because of the label. 
nor was the artist in the position that they were beholden to the whims of the label. It just didn't work that way. It was so much more than that. It would just take time for that to become apparent. The band soon broke up. All three members, for the most part, refused to talk about the album and to each other. This likely added to the legend of the record. Mark Hollis returned a mere seven years later with a follow-up album. Originally, this release was planned to be the contractually obligated Verve release under the name Talk Talk, with the title of Mountains of the Moon. Instead, what we received was an alleged Mark Hollis solo album titled Mark Hollis. It's an album that's just as oblique and sparse, but the environment has shifted. These sounds aren't as tied to the earth, but are instead found inside locked closets and dark basements. The lyrics are whispered and pleading. They require a fixed deliberation of the listener who feels constricted and voyeuristic at the same time, like being caught reading someone's diary. Take, for example, the opening track, The Color of Spring, an apparent nod to Talk Talk's long-gone album, which sounds not too dissimilar from a recent Nick Cave song containing elliptical lyrics but stripped of Warren Ellis' wall of sound and emotion and replaced with a brief hint of Kenny Gorelick. Can I guess the color of spring Immersing that one moment left on love Throughout, Hollis limited even further the amount of notes played, saying, Before you play two notes, learn how to play one note, and don't play one note unless you've got a reason to play it. This album caps Hollis's career perfectly, as if he finally reached the essence of perfect solitudinal catharsis, ending with two minutes of nothing but the hiss of tape as its wistful goodbye. There was really nothing left for him to do but release himself. Mark Hollis died on February 25th of 2019. The stature of Hollis and Talk Talk's second act has grown immeasurably with the benefit of hindsight. Laughing Stock, along with another 1991 release, Slint Spiderland, create a landscape for experimental popular music. True pioneers of post-rock's textural collages and structural ambiguity. Talk Talk's influence has been noted on scores of artists, from experimental indie acts like Godspeed You Black Emperor, Elbow, Kate Bush, Zuzu, Fleet Foxes, and Bon Iver, to significantly more popular artists like Radiohead, Blur, and Coldplay. And you know you've made it if both Radiohead and Coldplay like you. At that point, you're only a Dave Matthews band away from the trifecta of bands we hated in college. Transformations are often harrowing. We don't like to think about it, but caterpillars essentially cannibalize themselves to dissolve their own tissues in the cocoon before they can fuel rapid cell growth. If the chrysalis is disturbed before its time, there is inevitable death. Dramatic analogy aside, one of the most beautiful things about music is that there is always the possibility of the new, rebirth into something greater. While the industry, the fans, and even the artists themselves sometimes stifle this, when the change comes to fruition, it is breathtaking to behold. What did you think of this album when you first heard it, and how well did you know it before we decided to do this episode? I didn't know anything about it, which is strange, because I'd seen the name quite a bit, but I always just kind of filed them away under, like, 80s band that I don't have too much interest in. But when you said, you know, this one looks like a good, could work for these isolation records, and we read a little bit about it, you know, I became kind of intrigued. It sounded like a really interesting record. And I was kind of 
into the idea of doing an album that we hadn't heard or hadn't really known. So the first time I listened to it, I thought it was okay. And then as I started writing more about it and reading more about it and listening to it the second and third time, it really grew on me where I I like it quite a bit now. I think knowing the story of how it was pieced together helps in this case. I don't think that's always true. You know, seeing how the sausage is made is not always your best bet. But for this one, it, it worked for me. When I first heard it, to me, it sounded like Sting's Bring on the Night. Like, his voice sounded like Sting to me. The music was a little too jazzy for me. Yeah. I have listened to it a few more times, and, and it does get better and better. So I don't dislike it at this point. I did when I first heard it, but I like everything that went into it. And I really like Mark Hollis's solo album that came out after this. And I had not heard that at all. I didn't even know it existed. But now that I've heard that, and I think we talked about this, if we had heard that album before we started working on this, we probably would have done that album. It's incredible. Yes. After I listened to that record, I thought that would have been maybe more in line with what we were trying to do with isolation. Because it really feels isolated. It feels like he's locked in a room making that record. You can hear his chairs creaking a few times it sounds like he is all alone and the songs sound like he is all alone everything about it does yeah and i think you know with laughing stock it is an experience and it is like a listen to the whole record you know kind of piece of art type album which have which has its place in time you know it's not always what you want to hear but sometimes it's great for reading all about him you know and we make fun of him a lot (laughs) In this episode, he seems like he'd be really hard to work with, but he also seems like he had really good ideas. He very easily could have written great three-minute pop songs and been huge, but that's not what he wanted to do, and that's not what he did, and you have to respect that because he put out exactly what he wanted to, and he really didn't care what stood in his way, and I appreciate that he used his his fame and money not to get more fame and money, but rather to do what he wanted to do with music, because I don't think people always do that. Even with him being uh, kind of a dick, he certainly could have been a lot worse. I don't mind somebody just being a jerk. He didn't murder anyone. He didn't rape anyone. He hasn't, I mean, as far as we know, he's not a bad human being. He was just kind of hard to be around. And what he did, like you said, he had a He had a vision, and he accomplished it. How many people have done that? Yeah. And it took him years. I mean, years of playing the game and getting getting there. And it sounds like one person we talked a little bit about was the manager, and I'm I'm forgetting the manager's name. But that manager, I think, was really important in shielding him a lot from the label stuff. That He was kind of like the go-between, and he really kind of helped keep him and Freeze Green the other songwriter who was very important to kind of kept them focused on the art while he dealt with all the crazy label stuff. And I think that really helps give him that avenue to actually complete this. Cause it seems like the sort of project that very easily could have got sidetracked or pulled or, you know, whatever. But if something like that interests you at all, I would definitely take a listen to it and don't, and give it a couple listens. Maybe if you can, it's, it's intense. It's not easy but very beautiful too. It doesn't get worse when you play it more. It gets better. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Let's uh let's play some songs. All right, the first song that we are going to play tonight is by a band called The Ideals, and the song is called The Gorilla. Go, 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 gorilla, go, now go.
All right, that was The Ideals with a song called The Gorilla, which was originally released on Cortland Records in 1962. The version that I have was put out on Norton Records, and it was released in 2011. It has a great cover, which we'll definitely put up, as we always do. The band was a Chicago band that actually had started in 1952 or around 1952 and they were in their teens they were very young they went through a lot of players they had major lance uh, who was a soul singer later he actually played with them for a little while they started out as a doo-wop group they didn't actually record anything until 1961 and then they had a single that they put out called together and it wasn't really much of a hit they didn't get back into the studio till 63, and at that point they had a new singer. Then they got signed to Concord and came up with the Gorilla. The song is awesome. Herb Kent, kind of a famous DJ, was a huge fan of it, so it was kind of a hit, not much. I heard it on a Discog seller's page when I was trying to look for something to get the shipping cheaper. And it ended up being something I really, really like a lot. It's a lot of fun. They also made a second part to this, and it was called Mo Gorilla. And it was a <laughs> fake live song that sounded more like a garage band, but it wasn't really very good. The Ideals went on to actually have one hit on the charts with a song called Kissin' from their second album on a label called Satellite in 1966. The band kind of morphed into more of an R&B style, and a couple of the players went on to another Chicago band called Tom and Jerio, and they had a big hit called Boogaloo. The Gorilla song is just incredibly infectious. If I were still playing records out in bars, I would make this something I'd play every time. It's a great song. And you said Norton reissued it? Yep, in 2011. So originally the single had Don Juan as the B-side. This one has Mo Gorilla, which is much better. Much better song. I'll have to keep an eye out for that. It's a, it's a super fun single. All right, for my song, I'm going to play The Cadets with a track called Drifter's Cotillion.
All right, that was Drifter's Cotillion uh, by a band called The Cadets. And The Cadets were a indie rock band from Jacksonville. I think they started in the kind of mid to late 90s. And this song is actually from a 2007 album called On the Death of Science as a Major World Religion. Our pal Cash from Kindercore is the drummer in the band. And as I was listening to a lot of that post-rock stuff, uh, with uh, Talk Talk and Slint, I remembered uh, this record that he gave me and I'd listened to a couple times because it's it's that great kind of late 90s, early 2000s sound of indie rock that brings in surf music and experimental music and math rock, but in a really kind of song forward way. And so I really enjoyed that record and I really enjoy the song. I think one of the things that I like most about the cadets is that they find a way to capture the 90s indie rock, which is something that is really near and dear to me. And they have a nice mix of bands like Don Caballero and Polvo and Super Chunk and all these other bands in there, and they don't sound like them. They sound like the cadets. They're a great, unique band. I know we mentioned that Cash is a friend of the show, and Kindercore is awesome, and we would have played that song no matter what. That whole album is great. I love it. Even if I hated Cash, I would want to play that. Song. <laughs> it makes it easier since he's a nice guy, but um, it's it's a record that I've listened to a few times since I got it, and and have enjoyed it each time. It's like they packaged two of their earlier records, or two of their earlier albums, which I'm sure came out on CD at the time but they put it on uh, double vinyl and it's on the label science project records, which cash also runs too. And they've had several cool releases and you should go check out science project records and get this or get some of the other stuff from there. It's, it's really great stuff. And it's just, if you're in the mood to hear that sort of indie rock, it's, it fits perfect. So um, I appreciate him letting me play the song. I, I did ask him and make sure it was okay if we played the whole song and he was, of course, very gracious, as he always is. A great guy. So we appreciate it, and check it out, the cadets. A couple things we want to mention. Uh, we want to say hi to a few folks who've uh, reached out to us. Uh, we always appreciate people letting us know what they think about the show. And um, Cole, who's, I think, reached out a couple times. He mentioned um, he was really excited about the Bob Trimble episode. So uh, thanks for listening, Cole. We appreciate it. You hopefully you enjoyed the the weirdness that is Bob Trimble. And then Sarah uh, reached out on Instagram and she's a big Jandic fan. And so she found us through the Jandic episode. And so she seemed to enjoy that. So she was enjoying the podcast and any fan of Jandic is a friend of ours. So we appreciate you guys reaching out. And of course we want to let everybody know that we are a proud member of the Pantheon music network, which is a collection of music podcasts that are really cool. Most of the ones that are on there that I've listened to have been awesome. There are a lot of different things and different styles of what people do with their podcasts or music podcasts. Some of them are music history like us, or some of them are talk about uh, albums and are more opinion-based. There are interviews with authors of just books about music. There's a lot of great stuff on there. Search them out. It's really worth it. They have a lot of, lot of cool stuff. And don't forget to support your local record shops, musicians. You know, we've mentioned some today, definitely Science Project Records, all these guys who are working really hard, independent labels, musicians, uh, who certainly could use your support. And that's a big reason why we do this show, to make share the music that we absolutely love and hopefully um, spread the word about some of the, some of the great st stuff that's out there. And right now, there are also a lot of live stream videos mm -hmm. online of people who are isolated and want you to hear their music. There are a lot of bands that are still recording and uploading albums. Like Ty Seagal put out like a five-song album on Bandcamp. It's Name Your Own Price, and it's all covers of Nilsson songs from Nilsson Schmilson. I think it's called... Ty Seagal, Chagall, or whatever it might be. <laughs> it's really good. He does a, a great cover of Coconut. And find us and communicate with us on social media. We are on 
Twitter and Instagram. Our handle on both of those is Highway Hi-Fi Pod. You can find us on Facebook. We have a page. And you can email us at podcast at gmail.com. Please, if you can, also tell somebody about the show. Just one person. That would be really great. Find someone who likes music and wants to hear more about the odder side of music history. And we would really appreciate it. The otter side of music. It's so slick. You know, I had a cat named Otter when I was a kid. Really? Yep. Was it brown? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. Have a wonderful... Hit by a car. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> Sonic bidet. <laughs> That's basically what our show is. Our show is a sonic bidet in reverse. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's bad. (laughs) It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.